Dr. Michael Sala, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. Um, maybe you could start just by giving our audience a refresher and just let them know exactly what it is you do. How would you describe your work? Well, I do uh, exopolitics analysis. I was a former professor in international conflict resolution at a major university in Washington, D.C. That was the American University. And I got very interested in claims of a UFO cover-up. And the more I studied it, the more convinced I was that the cover-up was very real and that extraterrestrials were visiting our planet and that uh, this was something that various organizations and militaries didn't want us to know about. Wow, that is a lot. So plenty to discuss, luckily. Maybe we could start just with this uh, word, exopolitics. What does this mean? Well, it is, I think, similar to how biologists talk about exobiology, where you have biology concerns life found on Earth and the study of it. Exobiology is the study of life outside of Earth. So similarly, you have politics on Earth, uh, international politics, geopolitics, and then you have exopolitics, which is the politics outside of the Earth. So, you know, we have flourishing extraterrestrial civilizations with advanced technologies, and they visit not only our our planet, but also other solar systems. So, you know, what are their politics? What are How do they politically organize themselves? How do they formulate treaties to resolve conflicts? How do they perpetuate conflicts? Do they use proxies? All of these things that we understand that are part of normal international politics are things that happen at a kind of galactic level or what we might call the exopolitics level. And so that's what I study. Wow. So, there, I mean, there seems to be obviously a, a lot of huge claims there, many alien civilizations, but we seem to have gone straight from, you know, there, there's all these alien civilizations. So how do they operate politically? So maybe we can just start by um, sort of naming some of these civilizations that you're aware of. How many would you say there are and what are the names of some of them? Well, I mean, it, what, what we need to distinguish between is, you know, the number of extraterrestrial civilizations that exist in our galaxy and we're probably talking hundreds of thousands, uh, from those extraterrestrial civilizations that are interacting with the Earth in the present day. And based on estimates from various sources, you know, they range from about 60 to a couple of hundred that are concerned or have been interacting with the Earth in some capacity for a very long time. And, you know, they're divided up into different groups i mean you know just you can characterize them as the good the bad and the ugly i mean the 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 the, the bad are what you would imagine to be uh, those extraterrestrials that really regard us as kind of like a lower life form that deserves to be controlled and exploited uh, then you have the the ugly or the indifferent which kind of like look at us as as just an interesting experiment and they're just here to observe you know are we going to make it as a civilization or are we are we going to collapse and then you have the good and they are the ones that really do try to help us and they seem to be genetically connected with us in terms of our biology being a result of genetic experiments that they began many hundreds of thousands of years ago all right, so I definitely want to pick up on a few threads there, but maybe you can just let us know the ways in which these alien civilizations interact with us Earth folk. Well, many of them interact with us uh, behind the scenes. I mean, uh, you know, these are beings that have very powerful telepathic abilities, so they don't have to necessarily interact with us physically, uh, which does happen. I mean, you know, there are many, many reports of physical contacts. I mean, the abductions are probably the most famous or the most well-known. Uh, these are where people are taken up into these physical craft and they're kind of like biologically experimented with and tampered with. And then you have the common more, more famous or older known cases involving contactees. These are people who are taken into craft, typically piloted by human-looking extraterrestrials, and they're treated very well. Uh, they're respected, and so these are kind of like very positive interactions. Uh, but then you also have, and probably the, the most contact happens uh, telepathically. I mean, whether it's uh, people receiving kind of a download or a telepathic message or in the dream life, or maybe that they there's kind of like these out-of-body experiences that happen as well. So there's, there really is a wide variety of ways that contact happens.
How do we know that humans have received telepathic communications from extraterrestrials? Well, I mean, you can go back to the very earliest scripture. I mean, uh, you, you look at the book of Enoch or look at the uh, book of Genesis in the Bible or, or in the Quran with Muhammad. I mean, the, many examples of uh, these prophets or beings having telepathic communications. I mean, they, they called it God or they called in or they called it angels. But really, I mean, these were just terms used in that in that time for what we today would consider to be extraterrestrials. And even, even today, I mean, uh, you know, many people who have had contacts have these telepathic communications first. Uh, probably the, the more, most famous were ones like uh, George Adamski, Howard Menger in the 1950s. You know, they'd receive telepathic communications. You know, they'd be told, well, go out and drive to drive to this location and we'll meet you there. So they drive out there and before you know it, a flying saucer lands, they get picked up and taken up for a ride. Okay, so I mean, you reference some of the monotheistic scriptures there as evidence of telepathic communication, but skeptics, of course, would say these doctrines and, and texts, these are claims, these are not evidence of the claims. Is there anything we can point to or look at? from a sort of substantive point of view that would point to either the existence of extraterrestrials or the uh, emergence of telepathic, telepathic communication between extraterrestrials and humans? Well, you know, there have been a lot of uh, parapsychological studies of, of telepathy showing that it is very valid and that it does work and that it takes a very sophisticated mind or disciplined, mentally disciplined mind to be able to do it. So, I mean, there are people like Yuri Geller, for example, who in the 1970s and 80s demonstrated uh, scientifically um, in laboratories that telepathy really did work, that he could, uh, he, he could use that. And there have been others who have done similar experiments in scientific conditions that show that telepathy works. So this is, this is of course, involves kind of like a rare number of individuals that have this ability, um, which does seem to kind of like involve uh, a great degree of mental discipline and concentration. So if you think about how extraterrestrials would, by virtue of the fact that they are more highly evolved technologically and kind of like mentally than us, that they would have these abilities to a far greater degree than us. So I, I think you can make a very good case just looking at scientific studies showing that telepathy does happen, you know, just with humans to kind of like extrapolate from that and say then it's very highly likely that you you would have extraterrestrials being able to communicate with uh, humans as you know as i said scripture uh, like uh, discusses quite a lot okay i'm aware of yuri geller and he's always struck me as somewhat of a showman more than someone who's legitimate but i do have to say the idea that it's been scientifically proven that Yuri Geller is capable of telepathy. Doesn't really stack up. Are we saying there are scientific papers that are peer-reviewed and credible that exist that demonstrate the existence of telepathy between humans? Oh, yeah. If you go to the Stanford Research Institute, I mean, there are many studies that were done there on telepathy and paranormal studies that, that show that. Uh, there's an expert, Dean Radin, uh, who uh, operates uh, with a number of uh, scientific uh, scientists who study parapsychology, and they've been able to show that telepathy is something that is, is very real. So there are a number of studies in uh, parapsychological uh, research that that shows that this does work and I, I would recommend people uh, look up uh, Dean, Dr. Dean Radin and, and uh, examine some of his work on uh, telepathy as a viable means of communication. All right I will certainly check that because that it being scientifically established is certainly news to me so I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to check that out. Um, so if these aliens are interacting with uh, our planet all the time, and it seems to me that you think that we are aware of this in terms of governments are, are aware of this uh, and covering up. So I suppose my question would be, what, what would be the worth of covering up? Why keep something like that a secret from the general public? Well, I mean, extraterrestrials who travel from other solar systems uh, visiting our world would, would have advanced technologies that 
for one, the military would not want to reveal to the general public because that would expose the military as being incapable of defending the earth. And, and no, no military wants to admit that they've discovered a, a potential enemy which has far superior firepower to them. Uh, then, then you have the kind of like uh, uh, oil industry, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the free energy technologies that would be something that the extraterrestrials use to power their craft on these uh, intra intergalactic flights or being able to travel from one solar system to another would make the fossil fuel industry redundant overnight. So right there you would have like a trillion dollar industry disappearing. So you would have a big oil interest not wanting this to come out. Uh, similarly with the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, they, they wouldn't want uh, the truth that uh, there are advanced forms of uh, healing modalities using electromagnetic energies and using holographic technologies that can that can heal people from all sorts of things and regrow limbs and so forth. And, and, and so that would, again, the pharmaceutical industry, we're talking about a trillion dollar industry. So they... So there are people associated with that. And then you have the religious institutions. I mean, they organize religion that really have been able to monopolize human thought and consciousness for, for millennia, getting people to believe uh, that you have to have a priestly class to mediate between you and some transcendent God. Now, if all of a sudden extraterrestrials show up and say, hey, you know, we were the ones that... Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're considered angels or we're considered to be supernatural beings by your forefathers who wrote these uh, religious texts. Um, so we're here now. So, you know, right right away, that, that would kind of like undercut the legitimacy of the Catholic Church and major organized religions because you, you don't need the middlemen. You don't need the priests anymore to mediate between you and God because uh, you now have the extraterrestrials here and these were the ones that were behind the establishment of the uh, very first religions. Okay, so I suppose if we accept what you just said, that that explains perhaps the motivations of humans, but why would uh, an incredibly advanced race take orders from us? What What's stopping them just announcing themselves or revealing themselves? Why are they towing the line for uh, human governments? Well, I mean, they would very first, Thing that they would do when arriving here would be like to kind of like meet with the the leaders of of the planet so who would be the leaders of the planet well i mean of course we would talk about uh the major nations and uh, the united nations and so when they met the leaders and said we're here you know we have all of these technologies and this uh, knowledge that we want to share with you um can we do that and and the leaders would say no go away uh, we, we don't want you to kind of like reveal yourselves to the public but uh, if you like uh, work with us behind the scenes, then share with us your technology. And uh, maybe in the future, we might reveal that technology to our planet. So I think agreements like that took place uh, 60, 70 years ago. And uh, the secret hasn't been revealed yet. And all of the technologies that have been released have been uh, either kept secret or weaponized uh, by the military industrial complex. So if, this is an ultra secretive pact between extraterrestrials and humans. How is it you know so much about it? Uh, whistleblowers. I mean, this is uh, people who have worked within the system, who have worked uh, either with uh, um, the military, uh, being part of uh, classified programs where they've directly interacted with extraterrestrials, or they've been part of some corporate uh, project where uh, there were extraterrestrial craft that were being uh, studied and reverse engineered. And in very the very uh, what's very uh, significant here is that uh, in, around 2018, 2019, you actually had uh, members of the U.S. Congress being briefed by a scientist, uh, Dr. Eric Davis, who was talking about one of these projects that involved the reverse engineering of a captured extraterrestrial spacecraft and that a corporation had this craft and allegedly hadn't made much progress. And so this was this was what was being briefed to the US Congress and actually led to the Congress passing the, the National Defense Authorization Act in 2019-2020, which led to the creation of these different offices um, within the Pentagon and the 
uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which they are officially studying UFOs. So the UFO issue has gone from being a conspiracy theory to now being a legitimate national security uh, concern with um, with officers in the Pentagon and with uh, yearly reports being delivered to the U.S. Congress. So things have changed in the last couple of years tremendously here in the U.S. Okay, so these are extraordinary claims, obviously, for the existence of extraterrestrials and their abilities and these these pacts with world governments, etc. And I suppose, like, the only sort of uh, evidence we have really is anecdotal, is, like, whistleblowers and skeptics and, and people who are not entirely sure on this would ask, what what else can we see? What What is tangible? Is there any extraordinary evidence you could point people towards that would be convincing? Uh, photos and video. I mean, a lot of people have taken uh, photos of a uh, spacecraft. Uh, one, of, one of the witnesses that I work with, he's actually serving in the U.S. Army. I just use uh, um, a pseudonym JP for him. But he's actively serving in the U.S. Army. And uh, he says that he's been taken on uh, these spacecraft, uh, spacecraft belonging to either extraterrestrials or to a secret space program run by uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, which which is now part of uh, Space Force. So, you know, he has those claims, but he also has photos and videos, and he shared those with me, and I've released them publicly. And, uh, you know, there, there has been some media coverage of this, but not not that much but but there you have it i mean you, you have people who have who have seen these craft who have been inside these craft who are dis, who are disclosing what they know of these craft and have photographs and video to support their claims so at what point did this land on your radar what piqued your interest in it was it a single incident was it a gradual process how, how long have you been interested in this this idea of extraterrestrials uh, it really began for me in 2001. Before that, I was, uh, as I said, a, a professor in international peace and conflict resolution. So I was very interested in, you know, what are the causes or what are the sources driving international conflict? And so as I began to research that, I, I came across the, this this idea that there was a cover-up of uh, UFOs and extraterrestrial life. So in, in May of 2001, I saw the Disclosure Project press conference organized by Dr. Stephen Greer, where there were 21 witnesses that came forward talking about what they knew of this cover-up. And I listened to that, and uh, the more I began to research that and dig into it, it took me about 20 months. So, you know, just over a year and a half, I researched it. And at the end of that, that period, I was convinced that this was real, it was happening. And so I decided to kind of like um, abandon uh, my uh, previous research inter interest in international politics and to now focus on exopolitics. And so that's how it all began for me. So when we talk about exopolitics and the, the structure and hierarchies of extraterrestrials, are you hypothesizing what that might look like or are you saying you're in receipt of actual knowledge of how they operate and what the hierarchies are? Well, I haven't had direct experience myself. I mean, I, I have... I work with uh, quite a number of people who have had direct experiences, people who uh, we can describe as contactees or as insiders or whistleblowers. You know, these are these are people that uh, maybe say, for example, that uh, they were taken up into a craft and they had all these experiences and they were given all this knowledge about different or, or different ways in which extraterrestrials organize themselves, or you have people that say that uh, they were part of a secret space program, that they were recruited because they had special skills, uh, whether they were intuitives, whether they were kind of like uh, super soldiers, they had certain skills that were of use, and so uh, the people like that have come forward and shared that information with me. So I, I look at all of that as a kind of political scientist would look at the data, or maybe a, a more apt analogy would be as an intelligence analyst. If you're an intelligence analyst and, and you're trying to find out whether something is real or not, I mean, you you look at all the sources of, of information. You know, you look at electronic um, electronic sources, you look to uh, photographic sources, uh, you look to kind of like a human sources or human intelligence, as it's called, and you and you look at all this and you pull it all together and you try and work out well, you know, how how. How plausible all of this is? Is this something you? Is the information and your conclusions something you accept with a high degree of confidence, medium degree of confidence, low degree of confidence, and so forth?
When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Koro are amazing. I have them on my cheese on toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. I don't know. Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. So we talk about whistleblowers and, and people who claim to have been abducted um, in extraterrestrial vessels. How are you distinguishing between sincere people, people who are lying, and people who just may be delusional? Uh, that's a very good point because there are delusional people out there, and you know, these are people who uh, psychologically uh, are, are kind of like a, there's a certain pattern. Uh, you, you can find uh, people who haven't really achieved too much in life, and they hear stories like this that their subconscious will manufacture an elaborate story about being one of these secret space program people. But one of the things that I began doing from the very time I got involved in this was that I would always work with professionals. I would work with people that were like, uh, you know, whether they were engineers, uh, whether they were scientists, uh, whether they were uh, military personnel that had retired, you know, people who had something to lose by coming forward. Because that's always a big uh, way you can identify people who are legitimate, sincere witnesses from those that maybe are delusional and want to get uh, public fame is, you know, does a person have something to lose by coming forward? So if you are a scientist, if you are someone who has retired from the military or from a major corporation and you start saying uh, this is what happened, then to me, a person like that is very credible because they have a lot to lose. They have their reputation. Whereas a, a, a person who hasn't had any hasn't achieved anything kind of like uh, notable in their life and suddenly all of a sudden comes up and says that, well, you know, they were a general or they were a, a king and an extraterrestrial planet somewhere in, a, in the in the Pleiades, then I would be very sceptical about that. And obviously you're, you're a believer. You've already said that you're convinced this is a real thing. How do you account for your own confirmation bias then? Because obviously there must be a, a huge desire to get that smoking gun or corroborate things you've already seen. How do you remain neutral when investigating what might be credible and what might not? Well, you know, I started off as neutral. I mean, when I first saw the Disclosure Project press conference in uh, uh, 2001. I mean, I didn't have an, a clue that this was going on. I was very green to all of this. I mean, I was a, a professor of international politics. So I was very well versed on uh, international politics, but this whole extraterrestrial genre was kind of like new to me. So I studied it and uh, I began kind of neutral. Um, and I arrived at the conclusion that this was very real and that there was a, a cover up. So everything that I've done since that time confirms that that cover-up is is real. But, I mean, uh, I didn't start off as, as a believer. I started off as someone that was open-minded, that was willing to look at the data and analyse it. Sure. So I suppose in this digital age now we have we have a camera on every street corner. Everyone has a supercomputer with a camera in the pocket. Uh, you know, we are media people now. We can break stories. We can We can document anything i don't think there's anything that you cannot find on youtube nowadays but it seems like these aliens are very elusive they manage they somehow manage to evade all this technology or at least what we do have pictures that you've referenced videos that are very difficult to authenticate so why is it that in this era of this digital surveillance and all this media equipment and camera phones that we can't seem to get this smoking gun bit of irrefutable evidence well, it is out there. I mean, there there are a lot of NASA images from the International Space Station that show 
various types of uh, uh, spacecraft. I mean, there's there was one image from about uh, six years ago which showed a kind of yellow dart-shaped object parked right next to the International Space Station. And so this was uh, a an ISS photo. Well, actually, they, they actually had video of it. And so that was something that circulated and, uh, you know, the, the people were very sceptical that this could be real. But nevertheless, you know, it did come from NASA. It wasn't something that someone photoshopped uh, and, and anyone could confirm that that was a legitimate source. So, uh, And there are a lot of people that scour uh, NASA images, whether it's from the International Space Station or whether it's of the terrain on Mars or the terrain on the moon, and on the moon, and they've found what they believe to be irrefutable evidence of ancient civilizations on the moon and on Mars, or of plant life on on Mars, or animal life even. So I, I look, I've looked at some of those cases, and I, I think that they are very compelling. And you know, so now whether that meets the standard of a smoking gun evidence. I mean, that's kind of like a, a very hard one. But but certainly what we do have today on the internet is a, a wide range of, you know, very compelling, persuasive images from NASA that can't be debunked because these are from NASA uh, rovers on Mars or from uh, NASA telescopes, say, on the ISS, to a lot of like CGI that is put out there by people that kind of like muddies the waters, which is exactly what the intelligence community does. Why would NASA release images showing extraterrestrial spacecraft? Is this a mistake? I, I think what you have, I mean, this was one of the things that was uh, covered in the Disclosure Project press conferences by two, two of the witnesses. Uh, they described how... NASA would regularly go through the photographs and and scrub them if they showed evidence of extraterrestrial life and so or of extraterrestrial structures on the moon and so this was something that that was happening and several of the witnesses in the disclosure project press conferences talked about this that they they were there that they were witnesses to NASA scrubbing evidence of alien artifacts on the moon on the far side of the moon uh, so. But NASA, since the digital age and, and since you have our live feeds on the International Space Station and on the Mars Curiosity rovers, I mean, a lot of these uh, images are, are released before uh, NASA or the sensors have had time to kind of like go through these and, and scrub them or, or remove uh, the details that would be incriminating. So that's how a lot of researchers are able to find evidence that you know that there are artificial structures on the moon and on Mars. So in reference to the the image you mentioned before about um, an, an official NASA image showing a spaceship kind of parked up near the International Space Station, now that would have garnered a lot of attention, especially in obviously the circles that you move in. Did NASA at all release any sort of official explanation? What was their story as to what that uh, shown in the image? As I recall, it was uh, they they put it down to some kind of uh, anomaly caused by one of the uh, one of the cameras uh, that maybe it was uh, picking up a reflection from something that was um, between it and the uh, whatever was out there. But yeah, certainly there was some kind of uh, dismissive comments made by uh, NASA about that because it did get quite a lot of exposure. So what? Why is the potential camera anomaly less plausible to you than a extraterrestrial spaceship? Well, uh, I think the pattern that I've identified is that, you know, there are people who have come forward and said that they have seen spacecraft actually park right by the International Space Station and that uh, astronauts have gone on these spacecraft and have and they've had meetings. Uh, the, of, of, you know, there, there's been a, a number of sources that have talked about this. Uh, one was uh, Clark McClelland, who's who was a retired uh, uh, astronaut, ground astronaut for NASA, and uh, he said that he saw on one of the NASA feeds a spacecraft parked right next to the International Space. Oh, actually, it was the the space shuttle at the time, and and so. That was one example, and there have been others who have told told me about 
their knowledge of craft parking at the International Space Station and uh, having negotiations with the astronauts. So those are kind of like claims from whistleblowers. And so that makes it plausible to my mind when you have images like this being released, showing what appears to be a craft, and then NASA tries to dismiss that by saying, well, it's some kind of camera anomaly or it's some kind of space debris, and so we shouldn't take it seriously. All right. I'll just remind our um, audience now, if you want to put some questions to Michael in the comments, I'll pick out some of the best ones. Um, so, Michael, it also depends a lot of this, unfortunately, on an assumption of a high level of competency, uh, competency from our from our officials, our world governments, and everywhere you look on the planet. I when personally, when I look at governments and states, I just see a well of incompetence and human error uh, and <clears throat> and personality issues and all sorts of things that culminate in mistakes, leaks, bungles, and worse. So, how do you have so much faith in these governments to be able to contain something this big and do it to the most part remarkably successfully? Well, they've done this very well uh, since the 1940s that they've been able to cover up. I mean. Uh, one of the most compelling cases is the Roswell crash from 1947. I mean, that wasn't the first, but certainly it's the one that's probably the most well-documented. There have been hundreds of witnesses that have been interviewed that, that, <clears throat> pardon me. <coughs> no worries. I need to have a drink. No, take your time. So uh, the Roswell crash is one where you have hundreds of witnesses who have spoken about uh, Roswell being a real incident involving uh, not one but two spacecraft crashing near Ros Roswell Army Airfield. And at, at the time, uh, Roswell Army Airfield possessed the only nuclear-capable bomber squad in the United States Air Force. And it, actually, that was even before the Air, Air Force was, uh, was, was formed. And, uh, and so that was something that was very successfully covered up. And uh, uh, there have been people, in, no less than the uh, public relations officer for the Roswell Army Airfield, that actually described how the cover-up was, was done. I mean, he, he arranged for his testimony to be released posthumously uh, because he didn't want any waves to be created for his family. And, and so that shows that the cover-up has, has been going on since the 1940s. And the very fact that the Air Force has been able to do this for over 70 years now and keep it a secret and people are still questioning whether there is such a thing does exist shows that they are very good at pretending that military intelligence is an oxymoron to kind of like make it appear and kind of like putting it out there that 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 the idea of military intelligence is an oxymoron. I remember believing that myself, you know, prior to 2001. But after I learned about this, I realized that that was just a, a cover, that the military intelligence community are, are very sophisticated. They under, understand the nuances of psychological warfare, and they know how to pull the wool over the eyes of the academic community, which I was a member of. Uh, very successfully, as well as as well as the mainstream media, which is not that hard to do, because all you do is you just get uh, uh, the editors of major newspapers or television networks, and uh, you put your people in key positions of authority, and uh, those editors will make sure that any investigative reporter that finds any uncomfortable facts about this cover-up just doesn't run the story. Okay, well, we've got a, a flurry of excitement in the comments, people wanting to ask you questions. So I'll just put a couple of them to you now. And hopefully this means a lot more to you than it does to me. Fred Witherose asked, what's the guest think of morphic resonance a la Sheldrake? Hopefully that means something to you. Uh, yeah, morphic resonance, uh, you know, that's the way in which our species evolve. I mean, that's, this is one of the things that... Um, is involved in you know these claims that extraterrestrials have been interacting with us for hundreds of thousands of years. That what they will do is they will genetically tinker with uh, a select group of humans, in, uh, 
creating new abilities in those humans. So you, you might only, you know, tinker with, say, um, a few hundred humans, genetically and, uh, alter their DNA, but they start to display certain abilities and and just and just as and, and through this morphic resonance, uh, those abilities will be passed on to the rest of humanity, and that's how you can uh, change an entire civilization. So it's it's like a so if you consider our planet as a kind of biological experiment uh, being run by uh, multiple extraterrestrial species, uh, they can use morphic resonance to alter the human genome for billions of people just by selectively choosing and manipulating uh, the, the DNA of a small group or small percentage. So, I mean, I assume that's something then that would leave markers, something that would be able to be observed in a scientific setting, in lab setting. Do we, ha do we have any information that, that shows this? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, uh, there, there's, there's uh, very famous um, questions, or legitimate questions about uh, the difference between uh, human chromosomes and uh, chimpanzee chromosomes. They, be, they seem to be uh, very similar, except uh, two chimpanzee chromosomes were fused, and, and that's, what it, that's what differentiates humans from chimpanzees. And scientists look at this and say, well, there's no way that this could have happened uh, through natural selection. Um, th that if, you know, if, if we were genetically altered in some way, uh, by extraterrestrials uh, who like took uh, chimpanzee or primitive hominids and just fused two of their chromosomes to make one, then then that is, to me, uh, a very good sign that this is how uh, human genetics were altered, or chimpanzee or hominid genetics were altered to create modern humans. So another question from Rage, Rage A. Uh, what's Dr. Salas' thoughts on the purpose of the Space Force? Well, Space Force is really, to my mind, uh, a very important development because what it does is that now it creates this view of space as a warfighting domain. And, and so rather than space being, being this benign environment that we know nothing about, and we have very little assets projected out there. Now, Space Force has been created, and space is regarded as a potential warfighting domain. And so that means that you need to get as many else assets out there as possible. So what it does is it transforms us for being a kind of like a very insular planet, not knowing about anything out there, to one where it's like, yeah, space is big, it's vast, there are potential threats out there, and we need to establish a presence out there. And, and I think, you know, from my studies, I've written now seven books on secret space programs. What it does is that it, it starts the process of transitioning these classified secret space programs, which are funded entirely off the books, into a legitimate regular military space program, which is funded through con congressional appropriations. Okay, we've also been asked uh, for you to tell us about Chris O'Connor's story. Who's Chris O'Connor and what's his story? Okay, well, he's, he's got an incredible story. He says that uh, he spent uh, 60 years in space uh, through, uh, these, uh, through this kind of age regression technology uh, that is used in these secret space programs. Um, and that's, that's kind of like, you know, when you first hear it, it's probably one of the more bizarre stories uh, that, that, you, that you hear. But, I mean, I did my research on this and I, I found a, a aerospace engineer by the name of uh, William Tompkins. And he said that in the 1970s that he was working for a, a aerospace company called TRW that was based out of uh, Pasadena, uh, California. And he said that one of the projects that he was working on, that he was involved in, and he has documentation showing that he did work for TRW, and he was uh, an aerospace engineer for, for, for many decades, that they were working on age regression technology back then in the 1970s, and they had, that they had mastered this. So, you know, even though today, you know, you have these stories of people who say, 
that they went through this kind of age regression process or age progression process, which sounds very fantastical when you first hear it. I mean, there are credible sources showing that these kinds of technologies are very feasible. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. How would that be feasible? So we're talking about regressing someone's age, so making them younger. It's some sort of Benjamin Button machine, I suppose. I mean, how, how would that be feasible? Yeah, well, I mean, it is uh, an, an amazing uh, concept. I, I think you, you could, I mean, the way I understand it is happening is that uh, you, you can do it holographically or you can do sure. it through some kind of a cocktail of uh, a particular group of uh, pharmaceutical products that can have some kind of age rejuvenation effect. And and I, and I think, uh, I mean, uh, we, we have in ancient scripture stories of uh, the different plants that could produce uh, longevity, that, that could reverse age and make people immortal. I mean, you, you had this in uh, the Sumerian texts of uh, Utnapishtim, who was the Sumerian version of, of Noah. And, and he went on a, uh, he was the person in the Epic of Gilgamesh that he, uh, Gilgamesh found Utnapishtim and Utnapishtim had this plant that could uh, make a person immortal. And, and so, you know, this is where you have the, the whole science of alchemy coming in, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the fountain of youth, the, the tree of uh, life, all of these ancient legends, I, I think, are based on fa factual technology or natural products that exist that can change a person's DNA to make one younger, to restore youth and, and to make one live uh, much longer. And I think the pharmaceutical industry is very good at being able to identify and find these and then to kind of like create products or to commercialize these uh, for for their benefit. And I think this has been what's happening in the classified world. And, and certainly there are multiple witnesses that say they went through this process. So, I mean, you would make a lot of reference to ancient texts and stories and legends. And a lot of people would just consider those myths. I mean, humans, we, we're so good at storytelling and storytelling is such an important part part of our culture, society, family, heritage, everything seems to revolve around some sort of shared story. In a way, kinship depends on it. It's the reason someone who says is a Catholic in Europe can strike up a conversation with a Catholic in South America, not knowing anything else about each other, for instance. But how are you getting from these are stories, myths, legends to these are essentially blueprints for what is happening in 2023? Well, the way I approach it all is to say, okay, so you've got these uh, ancient stories and, and you can interpret them in, in, in a particular way, like, you know, the ancient astronaut the uh, thesis that uh, you know, Eric von Daniken made famous in his books and, and, and many others ever since. Uh, then you have uh, whistleblowers. Uh, you have people who have said that they've been part of these uh, programs where they've participated in things like age uh, rejuvenation or age regression 
or that they've been part of secret space programs. Um, then there are kind of like uh, documents that exist that substantiate that some of this is going on. And, uh, and, and then you have photographs or videos showing craft or showing, showing people uh, being in the process of uh, interacting with some of these uh, craft or with even extraterrestrials. So if you, if you look at any one of those things on their own, you can say, well, this is just nonsense. It's, it's uh, inconclusive and we, we need to dismiss it. But if you put them all together, you say, well, you know, these are mutually corroborating uh, sets of data that, that show that something really profound is going on here. And so we need to find out more about it. And, and, and I think, you know, I mean, people want to know, well, is there a cover-up existing? Well, I think we can say conclusively there is. And, and this is shown by documentation. A, a very famous set of documents that was released by Edward Snowden from the, from the NSA that, that included documents from uh, your government's GCHQ showed that there was a program by the Five Eyes for a COVID, an online uh, deception program, and that involved UFOs. So you have to ask yourself, well, why would Britain's GCHQ be working with uh, America's uh, NSA, working with uh, Australia's equivalent and the Canadian equivalent, uh, conducting online deception programs dealing with UFOs? Well, why would they be doing that? That is conclusive evidence that there is a cover-up going on. How have we ruled out issues of national security in terms of military exercises with uh, aircraft? UFO doesn't obviously denote extraterrestrial by default. It just means unidentified. And surely certain states that are allies have a vested interest in protecting new technology tests, things like that. Is it a possibility that it relates solely to that? Well, I mean, there is a, a national security aspect uh, to the whole UFO phenomenon, which does, I think today, especially relate to the capabilities of foreign powers in being able to deploy advanced aerospace vehicles over one's territories or to conduct surveillance or to kind of test your capabilities uh, in terms of defence and so forth. And so, so that is a legitimate uh, national security interest. And we, we kind of see that that was exemplified by these uh, shootdowns uh, just uh, about just uh, just under a month ago um, in the United States, where you had uh, you know one large balloon and then three objects that were all described as UFOs being shot down by NORAD, um, and that and that is where you have this kind of legitimate national security interest uh, coming in. Now, to my mind, I, I think when we look at that and we match that with, say, historic reports of UFOs, I think today we could say, well, probably the majority of reports of UFOs in the skies probably do uh, refer to these uh, advanced aerospace vehicles that have been developed by the major nations. But if you go back 50, 60 years ago, uh, I think that these were overwhelmingly uh, extraterrestrial in origin, as the you know, various contactees and whistleblowers were saying at the time. Okay, let's see what other questions we have for you. So this is an interesting one. Uh, was the US government involved with covering up Gosford? Hopefully you not. You can explain Gosford for us and then answer the question. I, I can't say I know too much about Gosford. Um, I, I vaguely remember some kind of UFO incident, whether it was in Gosford, Australia, but uh, sorry, I really don't have enough info on that. No worries. So I suppose a more broader question then, uh, does the CIA play a role in the cover-ups? Uh, the CIA is critical in the cover-ups. I mean, that the CIA was created in 1947 in the United States. Um, excuse me, I have to turn something off. That's them now. Uh, yes. Um, so the CIA was uh, created in 1947 with the explicit task of being able to manage this uh, extraterrestrial phenomenon uh, by creating a huge black budget off the books. Because, I mean, if you're going to have a cover-up, if you're going to uh, create huge underground bases, if you're going to create off-world bases and spacecraft that can travel from planet to planet and even do interstellar craft, you're going to need uh, tremendous amounts of uh, funding for that. Well, you're not going to get it from the U.S. Congress because Congress would, would ask, you know, where's this money going to and what's it going to be used for? So the CIA's main task from the very beginning was to raise the money off the books. 
using things like uh, the drug trade, uh, pump and dump economics on Wall Street, uh, setting up uh, kind of like a, a international scams where they could uh, raise enormous amounts of money, uh, black gold, uh, various ways um, of being able to raise these funds. And they've been doing that very successfully since the 19, since 1947 and, and afterwards. And, and the CIA was also given the task of ensuring that uh, none of the information concerning uh, UFOs, extraterrestrial life, would ever, ever be leaked into the public arena. And, there, and a specific unit within the CIA, which was the Counterintelligence Division, which was initially headed uh, by James Jesus Angleton, uh, that he was responsible for the UFO cover-up. And so the CIA really has been at the centre of the cover-up uh, then and even today. All right, Dr. Sell, I appreciate your, your reminder alarm's just gone off there and we've had a good solid 45 minutes with you. If, if you have any extra time to answer some more questions, don't feel obliged, of course. Uh, yes, I do have another uh, appointment in another 10 minutes, but I, I can definitely go on for another 10 minutes. Uh, if... Wonderful. That'd be great. So uh, another question we've been asked is uh, any thoughts on Cory Good and David Wilcock. I think did you reference David Wilcock before? Uh, yes, um, I've, I've worked with both in the past, um, but I'm no longer working uh, with uh, e either of them. I've, I've found um, uh, Cory Good's uh, claims about his recent experiences just don't have uh, any kind of tangible evidence. I like to work with people who are able to corroborate their experiences with other sources, with multiple sources, because that, that that convinces me that we're dealing with something that's very real as opposed to something that's uh, fabricated or something that is being created for some kind of uh, commercial marketing uh, venture. So, uh, yeah, that's why I'm no longer working with, with him. Isn't there an issue with, with corroboration in terms of uh, first-hand accounts like these? stories of abduction and you know ufo sightings have become so commonplace in the in the zeitgeist in entertainment in media that people can just recreate these experiences having read other people's experiences yeah i mean that's a that's a problem i mean that, that was one of the things that i, I mentioned earlier about uh, what what happens when uh, a person who uh, is kind of like say emotionally challenged having kind of like a uh, problems adjusting to life and they read one of these stories and then suddenly realize or you know, their sub their subconscious manufactures for them an elaborate story of them being king of some world like uh, in the Pleiades star system or something or some fantastical claims of being a space commander. I mean, if, if a person has no abilities in, in their real life, uh, that kind of like co correspond with that because I mean you think of it logically if you were if you in a past life were a space commander of a king of another planet and you were here on Earth you would be a fairly accomplished individual you know you would be like like an Elon Musk for example now if Elon Musk suddenly said well you know I I now remember that I had a past life on uh, Alpha Centauri and I was a scientist on Alpha Centauri well you know someone like Musk coming forward and saying that you'd say well he has he has so much to lose by saying something like that, that it could only be real. Whereas for many others making similar claims, they've got nothing to lose. They can get the public limelight. So I, I use that as, as my uh, way of being able to distinguish between those who likely are fabricating or having delusions from those that are the real deal and who, who are genuinely remembering past life experiences or, or are having genuine um, uh contacts with extraterrestrials or have been part of secret space programs. Okay. Uh, Gene Thornton's asked, can you tell us about the Galactic Space Federation? Sounds very serious. Uh, yeah, well, this is one of those uh, organisations, the Galactic Federation of Worlds, that uh, a number of people say are here today and that they are interacting with us. And uh, there was a uh, an Israeli space scientist Haim Eshed, and I think it was in, uh, I think it was December of 2019, and he he came forward and he said that uh, Donald Trump was working with the Galactic Federation, and while Trump wanted to reveal 
the existence of the extraterrestrials, the Galactic Federation said humanity isn't ready yet. We technologically have not reached that level where we could handle that. Now, I mean, people would say, well, you know, that sounds fantastic. How can that be real? Well, I mean, the thing is, Haim Eshed was the the father of Israel's space program. Uh, he was the, the person who set up their spy satellites. He was a general in the Israeli army, and uh, he headed uh, for, for 30 years Israel's space program. And so he revealed this in an interview. So to me, this is the kind of individual I would say is very credible, and he's revealing some of the, the kind of crown jewels of what's been going on behind the scenes. And, and there have been many others since him who uh, have come forward to talk about the Galactic Federation. But yes, I, I believe, based on all of these uh, statements by Eshed and others, that there is a Galactic Federation. It is interacting with, at the very highest level, with Earth governments, and they're just waiting for us to reach a kind of certain level of technological sophistication before they can reveal themselves to us, which I, I think brings us back to your earlier question about Space Force. I think that's why Space Force was created, one of the reasons, because it'll allow us to kind of like generate some advanced space technologies that um, are used around the planet and, and transforms us into a spacefaring civilization. Okay, I mean, in the four remaining minutes we have you for, which might be a bit unfair to ask this question in that time, but maybe you can tell us what space arcs are exactly. <laughs> well, space arcs are very, very interesting. I mean, I the, the first reference to a space arc that I could find was in the Dolores Cannon material. Now, Dolores Cannon was a very famous hypnotherapist. She came up with this um, QHHT program to kind of like uh, get past life memories from people. And, and and so some of these past life memories from multiple people, she talked about um, how they talked about these space arcs appearing at the end of earlier civilizations before some giant cataclysmic events. And these space arcs would appear all over the planet, hundreds of them, and transport millions of people off planet to kind of ride out a cataclysm. And then they would bring them back to reseed uh, humanity. So that's in the Dolores Cannon material. And I was you know, very interested in, uh, of course, you have Noah's Ark and the story about that. And, and there was a um, uh, some remote viewing done of Noah's Ark by a team of remote viewers. And they found that it wasn't a wooden boat at all. It was a spacecraft, that Noah's Ark was a spacecraft taking large numbers of animals and fauna and a select number of people off planet to ride out a devastation. And more recently, there have been people that I've been working with, um, including this military insider that I mentioned earlier, JP, who actually have been taken to these space arcs. And these space arcs are, are all over the earth in underground uh, and even undersea locations. Uh, they're on the moon and elsewhere in our solar system. And they they appear to be kind of like um, ancient spacecraft that, that are dormant, that are in various stages of activation at the moment. And they have the potential to not only share incredibly advanced technologies with the with humanity to kind of like kickstart kick start us up into a kind of galactic civilization, but also if the need arises to evacuate hundreds of millions of people off the planet in the event of some kind of cataclysmic uh, series of events. Okay, Dr. Michael Sala, thank you very much for your time. I'm very aware you've got uh, to be somewhere else very soon, but I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been uh, lovely listening to what you have to say. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, just uh, if people want to learn more, they can just visit my website, exopolitics.org, and they can find out all about me and learn about my uh, programs and upcoming webinars. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. 
Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crime's underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing, he had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made Jews paid learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no holes barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.